200 years ago, on the 12th of February, 1809, a child was born in Shrewsbury in Shropshire who was to transform the scientific discipline of biology. Indeed, his ideas not only revolutionised biology, but in some circles at least transformed other disciplines as um, diverse as anthropology, sociology, economics, even politics. It was actually 150 years ago, in April of 1859, that uh, the boy from Shrewsbury, now um, 51 years old, published his revolutionary work. Of course, that boy was Charles Darwin. And his book was entitled the Orig- On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or the preservation of favoured races in the struggle for life. That was a short title by those, uh, the standards of those days. Today, though, we just describe his book as The Origin of Species. And I'm sure you know, Darwin proposed that all life stemmed from common ancestors and had evolved into its present diverse forms through a simple, understandable, essentially random process of Um, natural selection or survival of the fittest as many have put it and although Darwin himself actually avoided discussing the origin of mankind because it was a subject as he said so surrounded with prejudices the implication of his work was obvious from the start it suggested that God didn't create human beings in a moment as perhaps um, a simple reading of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 would suggest. Rather, it suggested that human beings came to their present form by a long incremental process. Perhaps we were just naked apes. Darwin himself was actually cautious in his theological conclusions as well. But it wasn't long before he was the centre of a raging theological debate. Many leading evangelical Christians were actually firm supporters of uh, Darwin from the start and saw no contradiction between uh, the processes that he was describing and uh, what is described in the Bible. But others felt that his ideas were deeply contrary to the Bible and to make it even more complex there was uh, a group of um, vehement atheists, or actually they used to in those days like to call themselves agnostics, vehement agnostics, who began to claim that Darwin had removed the need to believe in God. And so a debate began, actually starting just down the road really in... um, uh, the Science Museum in Oxford, which has now raged for 150 years. So, on this um, 150th anniversary of um, the publication of The, Honor, uh, the uh, Origin of Species and the 200th anniversary of uh, Darwin's birth, I couldn't resist the opportunity to um, have a look, another look at what the Bible says about our origins. And as we do so, 
I don't actually want us to focus too strongly on the uh, philosophical and the the scientific um, uh, debates. I've spoken myself recently on on the subject. Um, We could have a discussion, we could organise a discussion um, if people were really interested about it sometime. Um, Just have a word with me if you want to take it further. I'm not going to focus on those things on the, in these Sunday um, morning sermons. Rather, I'm going to focus on, I want to, I want to let the Bible set the agenda. What I want to show you is that the Bible itself, taken on its own terms, provides a profound, realistic and glorious explanation of our origins. Personally, I don't actually believe it it, it contradicts the broad outline of uh, modern science. I don't actually believe that uh, um, the early pages of Genesis intend, or any other part of the Bible for that matter, intend to discuss evolution or the age of the earth or any other of those uh, hot issues. Those are very uh, issues very interesting, very worthy of our investigation, but they are not frankly, the focus of Scripture. Whatever the rights and wrongs of Darwin's theory, actually, Darwin's theory of evolution never did say anything terribly profound about human existence. In fact, I'm convinced that it's the great error of that, that, that modern, aggressive tribe of uh, evolutionary atheists led by Richard Dawkins, that they, they move, frankly, from making relatively uncontroversial scientific uh, statements and observations about mechanisms in biology to making the most extraordinary, grandiose theological statements about the nature of existence itself. They make connections that actually they don't they shouldn't be making. In fact, frankly, those those aggressive atheists are are, are performing a grand conjuring trick that takes in millions of people. Interestingly doesn't take in well-trained philosophers by and large. The uh, atheist philosopher Michael Ruse has said, Richard Dawkins makes me embarrassed to be an atheist. So crass are his errors. So I'm not going to focus on those things. I'm going to focus for this and a number of weeks to come, I'm going to focus on what the Bible actually says, how it describes our existence, how it describes God's work of creation. Atheists of uh, Dawkins' stripe make a very, very fundamental error. That the Bible immediately refutes, right at the beginning. And I want to look at that um, this morning uh, in Genesis chapter 1. Atheists 
assume that the most fundamental thing in the universe is stuff. It's atoms, it's molecules, it's physical forces, it's quarks, perhaps it's even Higgs bosons. They claim that they have deduced that, but actually they haven't. They just have said, we're only going to look at stuff to find out about the universe, and lo and behold, stuff is all that we see. It's like putting on, uh, uh, put, putting on a blindfold to prove that there's no such thing as light. It's ridiculous. And right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, no, reality should not be seen like that. The most fundamental thing about the universe is not stuff at all. It is mind. The mind of God existed before a single molecule had come into existence. Before the law of gravity had even started to function. There was the mind of God. People call the Higgs boson the God particle because they think it's eternal. And the Bible says that is absolute rubbish. Mind is more fundamental than stuff. Genesis chapter 1 establishes that in a very interesting way by repeatedly using a particular phrase. And God said. And God said. And God said. It occurs ten times in this single chapter. This, this chapter, chapter one of Genesis that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks is, is constructed with exquisite care and balance. And we're going to see more about that next week. A number of phrases are actually repeated ten times. The number ten is often associated with the idea of completeness in Scripture. Think about the Ten Commandments, for, for instance. So, woven into the seven days, which is another um, um, uh, 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 number associated with completeness, the seven days, one complete week of creation, woven into those seven days, actually the first six, are ten statements of God and God said. More than that, it's very significant where they, where, where they happen to occur in this narrative. Just uh, follow it through with me. On days um, one and two, we find and God said in verses uh, three and six. Then on day three, uh, we find it said twice in verses 9 and 11. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. Or verse 11, then God said, let the land produce vegetation. So verses, uh, uh, and then on day uh, 4, we find God saying, um, 
speaking just once again in verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day and so on. Um, uh, day five, we find him speaking once um, again in verse 20, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures and so on. And then on the final sixth glorious day of creation, we find God saying, speaking, four times. Verse 24, And God said, Let the land produce living creatures. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image. <coughs> verse 28, God, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase. And, God, and verse 29, God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant. Ten times God speaks in Genesis chapter 1. And the thing that I want you to see is that the whole of creation appears as God speaks. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Or or did you notice it in um, Psalm 148? which we read at the beginning. Let me just turn to it so that um, I can get the exact words that we read at the beginning. Um, If I can find it. He commanded, verse 5, and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that will never pass away. The highest heavens, the waters above the sky, he commanded and they were created. Before there was stuff, there was the mind of God. There was the plan of God. There was the purpose of God. There was the idea that God had in his mind. I will create a universe. We have not exhausted our understanding of the universe when we've exhaustively described all the stuff in it. There is something else behind that universe. More fundamental You could describe it as minds. Very often the Bible speaks of spirit or soul. It is an immaterial dimension to existence. Now, I want you to stop for a minute and just just think for a minute about what that means. It actually means something very, very fundamental about us. Because we too have minds. The uh, atheist, the materialist, the person who thinks that there are only particles and forces um, insists that actually our mind is just an illusion. Is, is very much a secondary thing. So the primary thing, which is stuff. We are simply 
um, trillions upon trillions of actions and reactions of, of physical things. I, I so well remember 20 years or so ago hearing the atheist neurologist um, and theatre director Jonathan Miller saying on a radio programme we must accept that our mind is just the product of a couple of pounds of biological porridge that will one day break down and rot. And human beings overwhelmingly don't believe that. Human beings overwhelmingly sense that there is something about me which finds expression in material things, which finds expression through the thoughts that I have, but, but, but these molecules and forces and chemicals and reactions and so on that are going on, they are, they are only the, the, the substrate, the physical manifestation, the way that I express my meanness. I am more than that. And the Bible says, absolutely you are. Absolutely you are. You are a person. God in his wisdom has given you the particular body and the particular biological and, and physical and chemical functions which enable you to express your personhood within this body. But you are more than that body. You are a person of more fundamental statement about you is that you are a person, body and soul, body and mind, body and spirit. You are not only so much stuff. And what is true for us is true for the whole universe. more fundamental to the whole universe is the God who has a purpose and a plan and a mind which enabled the universe to come into existence. I can't, I can't actually prove that to you in a test tube. Because just by looking at the stuff, you can't necessarily infer to those other dimensions of reality. But I can say to you, doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it make sense of who you are as a human being? Doesn't it make sense of the universe? Let's expand a little bit about what Genesis chapter 1 says then. Flick on two slides there. What does this word of God reveal about God? It's God who speaks and makes the universe exist simply by his sovereign decision 
the sovereign decision of his mind. It first of all reveals that God is all-powerful. Next point. God's great power. Again and again, there is a repeated formula in Genesis chapter 1 that I want you to see. Look at it in verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Or day 2, let there be an expanse above, between the waters. And it was so. Day 3, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place. And it was so. And it was so. And it was so. He only needs to speak and it happens. He only needs to decide that there should be galaxies formed which are so unimaginably big that, 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 that they, would out, they outweigh our whole solar system by a factor greater than the difference between a single grain of sand and the, and the weight of the mass of the whole earth. He only needs to decide that there should be such great galaxies and it is so. He only needs to decide that those galaxies should be, should, should some of them be, should be moving apart at speeds so fast that it approaches the, the speed of light and we, we can barely see light that comes from them because its wavelength has been changed. It's moving so fast. And it is so. He only needs to decide that in one corner of one small galaxy um, there should be a solar system that has one little planet that is beautiful blue and green and can support biological carbon-based life. And it is so. He only needs to decide that uh, Paul or Mark or Nicola or Sheila or whoever should be sitting here this morning and hearing about the glory of that great God and it is so. Such is the power of this God. The God of the whole universe. Our God. Let there be light. And it was so. And it demonstrates to us as well, not only God's power, but God's extraordinary wisdom. Next week we're going to see that Genesis chapter 1 is, is very, very tightly structured description of God's creation. Um, but let me just sketch some of it out for you uh, now. In the first three days, there's a sort of broad canvas stretched out in front of us. Light and dark, sky and water, uh, water and, uh, and dry land. And then in the next three days, days four, five and six, all the details are fitted in. He's like, like, like a watercolour painter. You know, if you've ever done watercolouring, you, you put the washes in first and then you put the details in. This 
is how God's creation is described. Here are the details, sun and moon and stars and animals and mankind. Everything is planned, everything beautifully balanced so that the land is created and then on day three and the animals are placed on the land on day six and so on. No wonder the book of Proverbs described God said that wisdom created the world. One of the great services that science has done for us in the last few hundred years is it has uncovered the extraordinary, beautiful economy of God's creation. We may yet discover a grand unified theory of Physics, but even without that, the mysterious complexity of the world has been has been um, shown to be just the beautifully simple product of a few simple laws. This should not make us doubt the existence of God. It should make us wonder at God's wisdom, God's skill the incredible economy of God. That he should produce such beauty, such glory, in such a beautiful way. Over the door of the old uh, Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge is uh, inscribed Psalm 111 verse 2 sadly when they built the new Cavendish laboratory things had moved on and they decided that they wouldn't put a psalm over the door but the old Cavendish laboratory still has this verse inscribed over its door great are the works of the Lord they are pondered by all who delight in them that's what scientists are discovering They are, in a sense, discovering the beautiful wisdom of God that he displays in his creation, that he displays in Genesis chapter 1 as first the broad form and then all the details are painted in. With that in mind, let's, uh, let's then just for a couple of minutes look a little bit more at then what God's word creates from his power and his wisdom. Two, I think. First of all, God's word creates wisdom, uh, order. Wisdom produces order. This is an orderly universe. I've already said it, so let me not... Um, um, Let me not labour it too much. The world is overwhelmingly predictable. When you put your foot down to walk a step towards uh, the edge of this room in, in a little while, you will not fall through the floor. Friction will stop your foot slipping. You will be able to move that foot. There are a few freak occasions when 
unexpected things happen, but overwhelmingly this is a predictable, orderly universe. There is no reason why it should be that, except for the mind and purpose of God who has created an orderly universe. But alongside that orderliness, he has produced variety as well. Verses 14, you see the extraordinary variety of lights, sun, moon and stars in 14 to 18. Or in 20 to 21, you see the variety of creatures. Or in um, (coughs) 29 to 30, you see varieties of food. When human beings freeze water, we produce ice cubes. All the same. When God freezes water, he produces snowflakes, every one unique and different. That is the way that God works. And alongside that orderliness and that variety, he produces extraordinary goodness and beauty. Every day in this uh, week that is described in Genesis chapter 1, God looks at what he has created and he sees that it is good seven times. Uh, The seventh time he sees that it's very good. Incredibly significant. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was morning and there was evening the sixth day. Christians are often criticised for believing in original badness. Well, I don't. I believe in the original goodness of God's creation because I believe in a God who is good, who is utterly good. It may have been marred since those first days, but what he created was good. And then finally, what God's word creates is purpose. There's a very interesting shift in the and God said statements in Genesis um, chapter 1. The first eight of the ten are all personal deliberations within himself. Let us make light, let us make, let us make and so on. But then the last two of those and God saids are actually addressed to someone else. They are addressed to mankind, to humankind. Verse 28, for instance, God blessed them, the man and the woman, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. More of this in, uh, in, in a couple of weeks. But today, I just want you to see that amazingly, the voice that a moment ago was saying, let us make stars, is saying to the first human beings, now, you have a job to do. Go out and do it. Multiply, fill the earth, rule over the earth, he says. Not, not as a despot, but as a faithful steward, looking after the earth on God's behalf, 
we have the most extraordinary, dignified purpose on this earth. We have a responsibility to people it, to manage it, to care for it, for God. You see, a narrow Darwinian understanding of our purpose simply says that our purpose is to survive and to pass on our genes. How pathetic. How diminishing. How dangerous, actually. Darwin himself reckoned that weaker races of human beings would naturally be wiped out in time. And Hitler eagerly took him up on that idea. But you see, the Bible sets out a far, far more glorious purpose for us. To labour, to care for this fragile, now broken world that we live in. That is our purpose. That is our privilege. So how are we to respond to that then? If more fundamental than stuff is, is, is mind, is the mind of God, and amazingly, there's something more fundamental than stuff about us. How are we to respond? Well, I, I know that there will be people here listening this morning who, who are either not entirely sure that God exists or they are not fully reconciled to him. And this is what I want to say to you. Can you really turn away from this extraordinarily wise, powerful, beautiful God? Do you really want to turn away from that to a godless universe? Actually, I want to say something a little bit more to you, which we haven't got time to explore, but we were exploring a bit in our, our praise time before. I want to say to you, actually, you will find this God speaking to you, not only in Genesis chapter 1, but even more clearly in the New Testament. Because Jesus is described as the Word of God Jesus, as God the Son, personifies this spoken word of God that comes from God and creates. Jesus stood up in the middle of a storm and spoke and the storm was stilled. Jesus spoke to unclean people and said, be clean, and they were made clean. Jesus spoke to a dead man called Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out 
and he rose from the dead and lived. That God who first spoke to human beings in Genesis chapter 1 spoke even more powerfully and clearly in Jesus. And he can speak to you. He really can. Through reading the written word, God can speak to you by his living word, his son. Don't turn away from that. It makes sense of what it means to be human. It sets you free. It helps you know what you were made for. You can't turn away, can you? And what I want to say to those of us here who have begun to follow Jesus, who have begun to worship this God, the God who is more fundamental than even the stuff of the universe. What I want to say to you is that he is infinitely worthy of every last ounce of your adoration and praise and labour and life. The way we put it in our vision statement is that we are called to delight in God. And that not some dull obligation that God requires us to do, but actually the only way that a human being could respond to this extraordinary God in delight. And if there is something that is blocking that delight for you right now, there is something that is stopping it, something that is getting in the way, something that is putting a blindfold over your eyes, Do not be satisfied until the veil lifts. Until you, by the Spirit, see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And are just awestruck. Let every step of your life be simply a response to that God when you go home in a little while when you interact with people when you go to work in the morning when you marry and have children and head towards old age care for other people and eat and drink and sleep and wake and everything, everything, everything 
It is what you have been given by God to glorify him and to find your fulfilment. Go forth, fill the earth, rule over everything. Be my stewards. That is your purpose in life. There is no more glorious purpose. Indeed, as we often say, to live like that is to display the glory of God.